0: Welcome to Improbable Developments. My name is Kevin Friart. Each month, I will interview scientists, investigators, and patients who are actively working in medical research and development. Our goal is to help patients and those who care about them to get to know the kinds of people working on their behalf. Welcome to Improbable Developments. My name is Kevin Friart, and this month, I'm talking to a longtime colleague and friend, Carol Marzetta. Carol, could you introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about your story?
1: Hi, Kevin. Thanks for inviting me to join your, uh, your podcast. This is really a privilege for me. Um, I am a discovery scientist by training, uh, so I have a Ph.D. in pathology, uh, which is a fancy way of saying I used to study cholesterol metabolism and reasons people develop coronary heart disease, um, and that's where I started my career. Uh, And then I moved away from the discovery scientific bench into managing portfolios in the pharmaceutical industry and have done that and have uh, worked extensively in global health to accelerate drugs and medicines to poor children in developing countries. And then back again into the pharmaceutical sector. So I have uh, led a privileged life uh, always waking up to help others, so that's my my short background, anyway.
0: Wow, that's great! So, you, you took a path within the the industry, went out and did some some other type of work. I really, I'd like to hear some about that today too, if you can talk about it. And then came back into the industry. So, what got you interested in getting in the pharmaceuticals?
1: Well, I always had a desire of trying to help. Uh, patients help people essentially and I think all of us know people who have cardiovascular disease nearly half of all Americans do and it's still the number one cause of death Uh, so it was something that was of uh, a lot of interest to me and many others and so it was easy to get drawn into trying to help lower the risk of cardiovascular disease and so that's where I got started.
0: Great. And roughly, when was that?
1: Oh, in the late 80s.
0: Late 80s. So you got started about when I did. Um, And what kinds of projects were you working on back then?
1: Well, two of them were actually uh, more successful, um, and they always come with acronyms, of course. But there was a program on MTP inhibitors, which is uh, an abbreviation for Microsomal Triglyceride Transfer Protein. And when you inhibit that protein, you inhibit the precursor to the bad cholesterol that causes a lot of heart disease. And so that was one program. The second program was focused uh, on ACAT inhibitors, uh, which stands for acyl coenzyme A, cholesterol acyltransferase. And ACAT was very interesting for two reasons. We thought that by inhibiting that uh, that particular protein, we could inhibit the production of bad cholesterol, as well as prevent the development of plaques at the arterial wall, and therefore have a direct effect on Uh, the development of coronary artery disease. So that was a really exciting approach. And keep in mind that all this was occurring long before Lipitor came into our lives. And so Lipitor has always been a well-recognized addition to helping people um, manage the risk and lower their risk of cardiovascular disease.
0: Yeah, it's when you think back when this was happening... People know they can control their cholesterol now, although they're still looking for new ways to do that. But back then, I can remember there were four or five different approaches people were taking and, and no one knew what was going to happen. I can remember somebody talking about the the niacin that people were taking. It was like you had to swallow big doses of it and um, it wasn't all that effective. Um,
1: yeah. We had we had several other programs as well, again, all focused on modulating cholesterol to reduce risk. Um, but it's a very complex system, as you know, and so this is typical of any discovery program where you have multiple approaches to address a disease, and over time, you hope that one of those approaches ends up truly helping someone.
0: Yeah, and it's... It's important, I think, for people to understand our listeners to understand that that's what you're always doing is scanning and looking for well which which project should I jump on here that has the best chance of moving, or do I stay on what I'm working on because we're just not quite caught up to them? It's very it's very complex, but it's also very you know uh, an exciting time when you're when you're racing to see if you can get something to the goal line. Um so what happened with these two programs?
1: Well, uh, with the MTP inhibitors, we actually got um, a drug candidate into clinical development, which is very thrilling for any discovery scientist, for any scientist, is to really truly test it in the patients. And so in phase one, it worked uh, better than we expected it, but it also had um, a side effect that wasn't uh, helpful at all. And so we discontinued it. And this is often true in the industry, and the industry always prioritizes safety ahead of anything else, but it was remarkably effective. And so it was a little bit bittersweet, but we knew it was better to focus our energy on other programs if it wasn't going to be safe for people. And so we did, and that was the MTP inhibitor program. And the ACAT inhibitor program um, went much, much further. In fact, several companies in the industry made it into phase three. And so this one came with a lot more hope. Um, But like the majority of all drugs that uh, drug candidates that get tested and developed, uh, it too failed. It just failed a little bit later. Um, And again, after dozens and dozens of people worked on it and tens of millions of dollars were invested. And again, it was also discontinued for the right reasons. Um, We just didn't have the efficacy and the safety that we expected in a disease that's going to reach hundreds of millions of people. So when you're in these kinds of diseases that have to treat a lot of people, the goal to have a safe drug is even higher.
0: So when you say that there wasn't the right efficacy and safety, there was efficacy. It worked. but. But the safety baggage that came along with it just outweighed that. Is that what you're saying, or was it you didn't have anything
1: for the a inhibitors? We didn't have enough efficacy. Yeah, it it didn't it didn't work. So what what you do in these clinical trials is you outline very clearly what efficacy would mean, and then you test it in larger and larger numbers of people. And the a cat inhibitors didn't work to the extent we expected them to. And so they were basically discontinued. And they all have safety, um, very mild safety things. Anyone can pick a package insert and read that. They all come with um, risks and benefits, of course. But in this particular case, the ACAT inhibitors from every single company that (laughs) went to late stage clinical trials, they all failed because at the end of the day, they didn't really reduce the atherosclerosis at the artery wall.
0: Well, so it, a whole industry moving in a direction and, and you all get the same answer back. It's like, nope, this one's not going to work. Um, it's very, it reminds me of, and I tell people this story often that when I was in discovery, uh, the only thing I ever proved was that guinea pigs don't get asthma. And I did that along with the the industry. We all found that out and we went to, had a little conference, a meeting and all our posters said, yep, we can't create a model of asthma in guinea pigs. We need to try something else. Um, And that's what happens. The science gets moving in a direction and people start following it. And sometimes it works out and sometimes it doesn't and you all had the same data leading you along a path. So after those programs didn't make it, so what happened to you in your career?
1: Well, I was asked by the organization to move into management and managing um, teams and uh, building project and program management groups. And so I actually left the bench as a discovery scientist and went on to do other things in my career.
0: So that's a big shift um, from from discovery into uh, more development work, uh, clinical work, where when you're a discovery scientist, you want to get in the clinic when you're working in clinical, everything's in the clinic and you want to get it approved. Um, So tell me, are there, did you have any interesting experiences while you were doing that job?
1: Oh my goodness. Um, I think the it's rare in our industry to actually be lucky enough to develop a drug. to launch, basically, to really be successful, uh, you know, we have high attrition rates, and so uh, I did have that luck. Not as a discovery scientist, of course, um, but as a as a new drug, a new drug candidate called sildenafil was entering phase two. Um, we formed a team to take it forward in a brand new indication called male erectile dysfunction. And at that time, of course, there were no drugs available for erectile dysfunction. And in fact, sildenafil was being developed for uh, another disease, for really the treatment of hypertension and, and angina, which is um, chest pain due to heart disease. And um, it was just some observations that um, showed the side effect of sildenafil in phase one was actually um, men getting erections if they were phys- if they were actually visually um, stimulated and it didn't happen if they weren't. So, but it was a very interesting side effect. Um,
0: so, so hold on, we got development. We got to unpack this a little. So who noticed this?
1: A clinician, a phase one clinician.
0: Wow. So phase and many one
1: clinicians had, so it was being recorded it's just that one clinician observed very clearly that if he could send in an attractive nurse and develop the side effect and have a patient develop the side effect
0: wow so for people who may not know what sildenafil is um, could you tell us what the brand name is it's they'll viagra. recognize it it's viagra the yeah Yeah, I actually was on that team momentarily, doing some medical writing, but I can remember, uh, the team dynamics were, were interesting. Um, And the, I I don't know, the energy behind that project at the time for Pfizer um, was something new we hadn't experienced before. Is that how you remember it?
1: Yes, it was. It was You know, it had a mixed bag, Kevin. It was um, when people began to learn that Pfizer was developing a drug for erectile dysfunction in men, um, it also got some bad press that people thought that that wasn't a real drug and that we shouldn't treat that disease. And I have to say that they couldn't have been more wrong. I mean, men that suffer from erectile dysfunction very commonly depressed. They can be suicidal. And the number of partners who reached out to thank us for saving their partner's lives because of Viagra was just heartwarming. So it is a real disease. It does create um, a very, very psychological and personal impact uh, on men.
0: So I remember I had changed my career then, and I was now working with the senior managers and there were lots of discussions around this. And it was, it was difficult discussions because we knew there was a medical need. And sometimes that translates too quickly into what's the commercial value. And the commercial value was something that Pfizer had never seen before. And so it went back and forth. Um, there were, there's a lot of concern around working in this, in this area, working in in uh, people's sexual function. And so, you know, the conversations were were pretty in depth. I can't imagine what it was like for you guys on the team working with this day to day.
1: Yes. We got a lot of pressure because it was the, the, kind of the number one priority at the time, but like all things, you know, you, you estimate value of all programs and it often does drive attention to these programs. But at the end of the day, Um, We overestimated its value and we used to marvel at the fact that we all still had our jobs because these are very imprecise estimates. And so it did get a lot of attention, it did create a lot of value to patients, it did create a lot of value to Pfizer. Um, But like all things, it gets mitigated by reality at the end of the day.
0: So let's talk about the, the pressure on the team that is caused by the attention that that as you said the number one priority is what what did the team experience from management and and what did you guys do to manage that how did how did you react to that
1: well it was a little exhausting for sure uh, the good news is we could get almost any resource we wanted and the bad news is we had to report to management all the time so we had to create you know presentations and give updates pretty regularly which can often you know, take more time away from developing the drug. Um, we also would go out into the world, of course, and, and um, we had to be very quiet about this drug because everyone was beginning to hear about it, knew about it, so we would go in stealth mode when the team would go out and work together in various countries to ensure that we were doing the right clinical trials and and getting the program set up the way it it should have been set up. Um, but it's, you know, it's a luxury to have that much focus and it's also very time consuming. And I think the team was one of the healthiest well-managed teams I've ever had the privilege of working with. And so we had each other's backs all the time and we would just, um, Conquer each of those as they came, and we would divide and conquer when we needed to. So it was, it was a well-run program with, you know, really, really top, respectful leaders, and so we worked, um, you know, day and night to, to try to get this this product to patients as quickly and effectively as we could.
0: Yeah. So the story with Viagra, um, it doesn't just end there. Uh, the so Viagra was the first in my history at Pfizer and my history um, looking at Pfizer as, as knowing about them at all, it was the first brand name that was like, I, I want to say it, it was known in 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 normal culture, it was on the news, it was everywhere, you know, the brand name Viagra, and everybody knows what that's about. But what happened to Viagra after its initial indication? And um after it had been on the market and what did Pfizer do with the drug after that?
1: Yes, because of its mechanism of action, we knew it, it really relaxed arterial walls, which is really, really critical for pulmonary hypertension. We wanted to make sure we developed it for this disease, which, um, which is very severe and had very little drugs for it at the time. And, so it actually has moved into additional indications over time. Again, leveraging that same mechanism of action, and like all things, other drugs have also been developed um, for the same uh, diseases and the same reasons. It's it's pretty interesting that it would be that diverse that you'd go between. Um, you know, male erectile dysfunction to um, pulmonary hypertension. so it's it's quite an interesting drug for sure,
0: and I think it it says to me that the the science that we find from each of these products that we or the science that we uncover is for each of these products leads to other leads, other other uses, and I've had several conversations with people who are interested in repurposing drugs or looking for um, uses for for those compounds that didn't make it—the ACAD inhibitors, the MTP inhibitors. The you know people are looking for ways to say, could we use it in this other disease that you weren't looking at at the time? And I think it's this is an interesting case study. Viagra, and we thought it was angina, and then we found that. Erectile dysfunction is something that it worked really well in, and then that led to pulmonary arterial hypertension in children, which isn't something that Pfizer probably would have jumped at as the first thing to go to. Um, I think it's, it's fairly rare, and you had to have pretty good confidence in the drug that you would be taking into such a program. So it's, just, it's fascinating to me to see a case study like that we've We've heard a couple of stories of your career. And um, first was you know some programs that looked very promising, moved pretty far along into clinical trials, and then had to, had to be stopped because they weren't showing the results that were required. And then we heard one that was a very successful product um, that's that management was interested, and the the organization was behind. And, as you said, you could get all the resources you want. Those are two very different situations. How, as a, as a senior leader, how did you work in the organization or with the organization to keep people motivated with wild swings like that of, of the way that um, things were, were going?
1: I think you have to reward people for definitively ending programs um, as quickly as they can, because I think all of us are motivated to work on drugs that we think are going to work. And what happens is you work on these programs for years and years, and they become your, your, you know, your scientific child. It's very hard at the end of the day to discontinue them sometimes. And so, what we did culturally is we really tried to reward teams for making efficient and effective decisions around either going forward or or ending a program. But you have to do that with grace and respect, and you really do have to honor people and let them kind of move to something else. And at the end of the day, people are resilient and we all come with this instinctive need to want to truly be helpful to people. And so as soon as you could get someone to say, look, you know, you would you would be better off looking at this potential drug because it could really help someone versus, you know, the one you might want to do one more study. To prove that you should discontinue it. There's always one so more became, study. So it that's the that's the challenge, and they're very expensive, as you know. And so we encouraged culturally, we encouraged teams to be very efficient and effective in making decisions and making recommendations, because at the end of the day, senior management makes the decisions. But as they made those tough decisions, we would reward them publicly. We would acknowledge them. We would honor teams, and we would recognize that it wasn't easy, and so it seemed to help. Uh, it does help ease the pain a little bit, and then ultimately, you just have to remind people we're here to help people, and, and that really is what people are in the industry to do, and so uh, you can get them to, to move on quickly to other programs and get them just as excited as something else.
0: Yeah, I can remember those times with the, the awards that were given and people, you said it seemed to help. I think people actually were very proud when they won those awards uh, and not in a bad way, but just, you know, it, it, it lifted them and, and they, they could walk around with, with dignity, even though some people say, well, your project failed. And it's like, well, it doesn't matter. The, the project had to fail. And we did it quickly,
1: and, um, and i and I assure you we put those trophies on our desk with pride I agree okay. I, I really do think it helped
0: yeah, I think it it's something that's maybe lost on people is is how hard it is to continue working when you you're likely to fail, um, and how hard it is to keep working when management's looking over your shoulder every minute um, there's always that that pressure. And it's a pressure to succeed, which is there, but there's also the the, the pressure to, to change when you need to and, and succeed a different way. It's really, it's. I've always admired the resilience of the people I worked with. So could you tell us a little bit about you outside of all this stuff? Maybe talk about the work you've done with the uh, the Gates Foundation or GAVI.
1: Well, oh gosh you're going to really get me moving again into my passionate areas. Um, Along the way, I uh, co-founded a strategy consulting company with um, a dear colleague of mine. And we spent about 13 years um, helping nonprofit organizations accelerate drugs and vaccines um, into the poorest of the countries. Uh, And this was mostly for children, but we certainly – did so for adults as well. That often means that much of it is funded by the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, and they truly have my utmost respect. They have moved that needle more than anyone. Um, But we also supported um, like the World Health Organization, World Bank, GAVI, which is the the organization that supports vaccinating children in poor countries, and, and a lot of the grantees at the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation funded. And so uh, we did a lot of work with the three major diseases, the number one killers of people, which is TB, malaria, and, and HIV. Um, but we also worked uh, on every one of the vaccine programs the foundation has, including many of the drug programs. Um, but along the way, I think one of the most, a um, the, the couple of things I take the most pride in, It's not just helping those tens of thousands of children because those vaccines and those drugs have truly changed their lives. But we've actually, we brought industry standards um, into global health on the analytical side of making good investment decisions and being able to understand the value of their investments. And so um, we actually uh, helped Gavi with their first investment strategy back in 2008, and, and they now do, they now conduct the same process with the same kind of rigor and to make all their decisions. And I think that's, that was really, really rewarding. And we did the same with the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. And I think when you make uh, good organizations better decision makers, and so you ensure they have all the tools and, and all the uh, analytics Along with their judgment and their experiences to make better investment decisions, you end up saving many more lives, and so those are the kinds of things I'm, I'm truly proud of.
0: That's wonderful; it really is. Um, and it's, you know, you took some of your skills you had picked up along the way, you know, uh, developing drugs, and, and turned it into something completely. It's related, but it, but it, but just completely life changing for for so many people. And you had a a real hand in that. So I, I love that. Um, how about other things? What do you do for hobbies and and things when you're not working?
1: Oh, wow. Well thank you for asking. Um right now I am a hospice volunteer in my community, which I think is really hard for a lot of people to do. So I hope I can give back a little bit. And so I do that. I I um I'm working hard to get on a board of a startup company, which I think I can add a lot of value to. And then, just on the personal side, I moved back to Connecticut. It's a place I love, it's beautiful. um I'm truly enjoying being back with my friends, and we do a lot of hiking um, and a lot of um, raising money for various foundations like ms and and feeding the poor. And cancer, and so I, I really lead what I believe is a privileged life out here, and um, continue to try to do what I can to help others.
0: Wow, that's great! It seems to be a theme in your life, helping others. And I want to thank you for helping me by uh, spending some time on my podcast. And uh, I look forward to maybe talking to you in the future sometime.
1: Thanks so much, Kevin. I I really think people that work in the pharmaceutical business can sometimes be underrated, sometimes be misinterpreted by the, the public perception of drug pricing and all that comes with it. But in my opinion, we all work very hard to help people and, and that's the privilege of being in this industry. So thank you so much for giving voice to that and for helping others understand that as well.
0: Absolutely. Thanks again. Improbable Developments is brought to you by Salem Oaks Consulting, empowering patients to shape the future of medicine. Special thanks to sound designer Jake Tompkins, who produced this episode. The Improbable Developments podcast is brought to you by Salem Oaks. The world of drug discovery and development is complex and confusing. Do you need help unraveling the biopharma R&D process? We can help. Check us out at SalemOaks.com.